But this morning, we're going to be looking at a, a, a passage, like I said, that is near and dear to my heart. Um, and as we begin, I want to bring your attention to a true story of a young man who, uh, his name was John, and he lived back many years ago uh, in Scotland. By God's grace, John had come to know the Lord sometime earlier in his life, but on this particular day, John was on his way to the hospital. John had developed some kind of uncomfortable sores on his tongue that just wouldn't seem to go away with time or at-home therapy. And so John made his way to the hospital, accompanied by his parents who were eager to figure out what was wrong and how to fix it. But none of them were prepared for what would happen next. When they finally sat down and John was examined, the doctor informed him that these sores on his tongue were cancer. And as the doctor graciously explained the nature of the cancer, he told John that the only way to make sure the cancer would be eliminated would be to remove the tongue. And the doctor then proceeded to say, I want you to understand, John, that even if the surgery is successful, you will never be able to speak again. John and his parents were heartbroken. They came to the hospital expecting to walk home, perhaps with some kind of medication to be able to help him with the sores. But now John was facing the, the choice of either losing his tongue or actually losing his life otherwise. And it's stories like this one that unfortunately are an all too common experience for us today. Sure, while most of the troubles that we face uh, don't really reach this level of tragedy, we all carry with us the weight of a wide range of cares and concerns on a day-by-day -day basis. And each one of you this morning has brought with you some kind of care and some kind of concern. And I don't know what that is, but I know you are all struggling in some way with something in your life at this particular moment some kind of difficulty that you have to face today. And for some of you, it's small. For others of you, it's rather big. But for all of us, it exists. And for all of us, at some point, we are going to face those bigger trials, are we not? And even though most of us in this room are believers, we often struggle to respond in a way that honors God through those difficulties, don't we? We are easily fearful we are frequently anxious. We are constantly worried all the time. Some of us even battle that anxiety to a large degree in our hearts on a regular basis. We battle the emotions of dread and paralysis when we come up against very specific obstacles that are unique to us and it makes us cringe and we don't know how to handle it. But whatever measure of fear you are fighting today, I want you to know that there is some very, very good news. Some very, very good news. There is an answer to the constant battle with fear that we face, and the answer is actually very simple. And it can be actually summed up in just one word, and that word is this, faith. Faith. You're like, faith, that's it? Yep, that's it, faith. Faith is the key to overcoming fear. Why faith, though? 
What is it about faith that makes it so effective against our fears? It doesn't, doesn't sound very powerful. It just kind of sounds abstract and just kind of something that's out there, but you can't really access it or obtain it. How does faith has, have so much power to alleviate our anxieties? Well, to really answer that question, we need to actually define what faith is, don't we? And we need to define it biblically because we can sometimes have some very funny ideas about what faith is. Uh, sometimes I think we treat faith like a whey protein shake. You know, like the, the more I drink of it, the stronger I get or something like that. I don't know. That's kind of how we think about it. And so to really overcome, you know, my fears, I just need to have more faith. I need to take in more faith. That's how I process it. That's how, that's how it works for me. But actually, that's not how faith really works. You see, thinking about faith this way makes us focus on ourselves and the kind of effort that we need to put into our faith. But that's not what faith is about. Rather, faith is this. Faith is the absence of yourself and the presence of God and God alone. Did you catch that? Faith is the absence of yourself and the presence of God and God alone. In other words, faith is entrusting yourself completely to God such that you play no part in the equation at all with whatever you're going through or whatever you're dealing with. You are saying, God, God, you alone are the only one who can accomplish this and figure this out and do whatever needs to be done. And there is no role that I play whatsoever. That's faith. That's faith. It's not a, me a measure of you adopting more faith so that you can succeed. It's just saying, I have nothing. I have nothing. And God has everything. And guess what? Now you have faith. And now you can what? Now you can overcome all your fear, all your anxiety, and all your worry. By the way, that's why, that's why God can say in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, that very beloved verse that we know, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. This is why Jesus himself can say in Matthew chapter 17, verse 20, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible to you. You guys familiar with that verse? It doesn't matter how much faith you have as if it somehow depends on yourself. It simply matters that you what? Have faith. That's it. You just need to trust that God will do what he said he will do. And then guess what? He'll do it. Because it's not based on you, it's based on him. That's faith. And in this, brothers and sisters, it's so critical for us to understand. Because if we're going to really learn how to address our fears and our anxieties and our worries, we need to learn how to fully and completely leave all of our problems at the feet of Jesus. That's what we have to do. We need to stop resorting to our own strength when we feel like God isn't responding fast enough or well enough. We've got to really trust God completely, fully, 
not putting any effort into the equation ourselves, or else, guess what? It really isn't faith, is it? It's really not faith. And so with that in mind, there's a lot about faith that we have to learn, don't we? And a great place where we learn about faith, I think, is, is Hebrews chapter 11. That's gonna be our passage this morning, Hebrews chapter 11. So open your Bibles there to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is the famous hall of faith. The famous hall of faith. And in there, it lists Old Testament character after Old Testament character in chronological order and shows each one exercising faith in some way during their life. So this is familiar to, I'm sure, many of you, most of you, maybe even all of you. But Hebrews 11, I want you to know, is not just a neat collection of carefully, uh, sorry, it's not just a neat collection of uh, faith stories in chronological order. It's not just that, it is. But rather, you have to understand that the author of Hebrews has very carefully selected certain historical characters and certain parts of those characters' lives to teach you a very specific lesson about faith and, and very actually specific lessons, plural, about faith. And that's what I want to help you learn today. Hebrews 11 teaches us three lessons about faith, okay? There's three lessons. And so, without further ado, we're just going to jump right into these, okay? Because we've got a lot to cover today. But the first lesson about faith is this. Faith always chooses the right priority. Faith always chooses the right priority. And the right priority is very, very simple. It's to please God. To please God. Pleasing God is always the goal of faith. Uh, we learn this lesson from verses three through six in, uh, in chapter 11 here. And, and there are three examples of faith in these verses that teach us this lesson. And here's the thing, they, they each, each of these characters that we'll see here, they each represent a different area of your life. You must please God with faith, okay? So let's, let's start with the first one. The first area of your life comes from the first example that we see in verse three, and it's very simply this. Faith demands you please God with your mind. Faith demands you please God with your mind. It says in verse three, by faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. What the author of Hebrews gets our attention with right away is that faith first and foremost starts with your mind. It starts with your mind. It must be allowed to influence what you think your worldview, your system of belief, that's faith. That's faith. And the way Hebrews gets this point across is by focusing on just one area of your theology, one truth that you must believe. And what is that truth? Creation. Creation. And you're like, why not something else that's maybe a little bit more important, like the gospel or something like that? That's, that's true, I, I, that, that would be fair. But there's a reason why creation is selected here as the one truth that you must adopt in your mind as your belief system. It says there, we believe the worlds were prepared by God's word, okay? And so you may be thinking to yourself here, okay, sure, I believe that, but what's the big deal? 
all you're doing is believing that one small truth in the Bible. Why is that one selected? Well, some of the men here were at Mighty Men a week and a half ago. And there was a multiple choice option in one of the questions on the quiz that we all took that asked us to evaluate whether it was true or false. And here was the option that was listed. Genesis gives the foundation for all the great doctrines of the Bible. Genesis gives the foundation for all the great doctrines of the Bible. If that's a true statement, that's a pretty bold claim, is it not? Gentlemen who were there, what's the answer? True. It's true. You're like, really? Yes. As crazy as it may sound, the book of Genesis actually gives the foundation for all the major doctrines that we know and believe in Scripture. All of them. In fact, creation just by itself gives us this foundation, not even just the book of Genesis. Without creation, you don't have theology, period. You miss on creation, guess what? You miss on the whole Bible. That's why this is selected. Faith starts in Genesis because creation is the foundation for your worldview. Faith starts with your mind then. What do you think? How do you reason? What's your basis for truth? If you're going to please God, your source has to be what? It's got to be God's word. And it starts with creation, but it starts with creation as the foundation because if you get creation right, guess what? You're going to start to get everything else right because you're going to realize it all has to go back to God and what he says and what he does. It's all about him. It's all about his word. And so if you're going to please God, your source has to be God's word. That's it. It's not God's word and maybe this religion over here too. It's not God's word and maybe this psychological theory over here. It's not God's word and whatever else I want to throw into it. No, it's just what? God's word. That's it. That's the kind of faith that pleases God. The second area of your life comes from the second example given to us in verse four, and it's this. Faith demands you please God with your will. Faith demands you please God with your will. Verse four says, by faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain through which he was approved as being righteous, God approving his gifts and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. If you remember the story of Cain and Abel, Cain offered uh, God a better, uh, sorry, Cain offered uh, God a sacrifice using the vegetables he had cultivated, right? Right? And Abel, on the other hand, offered God um, a sacrifice using the animals from his flock, right? So there's, there was a difference between the two. And God accepted Abel's offering while rejecting Cain's. And the question is why? Why did he do that? Why did God accept Abel's over Cain's? Well, it wasn't because Abel offered animals and Cain offered vegetables. And God likes animals more than vegetables. And God is, you know you know, not a vegan or something like that, okay? It's not like that. But rather, it was because Abel offered from the best of his flock. That's what it says. It says he gave his firstborn, which is considered the best animal. And he offered the fat portions of the animal, which is considered the best part of the animal. Abel was giving God the best of the 
best. Do you see that? That's why Abel's sacrifice was better. So why does Hebrews say Abel offered a sacrifice out of faith? Because Abel chose to treat God as best by giving him his best. He made a choice with his will to put God in the highest place in his life. And so in order to really please God, faith demands that you not only please God with your mind, you must please God with your what? With your will. You must make choices that clearly demonstrate God is everything to you. That's the kind of faith that pleases God. The third and final area of your life comes from the third example in verse five, and it's this. Faith demands you please God with your affections. Faith demands you please God with your affections. Verse five says, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For prior to being taken up, he was approved as being pleasing to God. Now the verse doesn't tell us outright, but what, what is the reason Enoch was approved as being pleasing to God? Such that God took him up to heaven without ever having to face death. Uh, Genesis 5.24 actually tells us what it is, and it was that Enoch walked with God. Enoch walked with God. In fact, he's the only man in those early days before Noah that is described as walking with God. Now that word walk, you should know, is the same word and even conjugation of the word walk that we found in, find in Genesis 3 verse 8 a little bit earlier when God, it says God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. God's habit of walking in the garden and was meant to communicate his relationship with Adam and Eve and the rest of creation. And so when Enoch was walking with God, what he was communicating and expressing is his own relationship to who? To his God. Enoch gives us a picture of someone who didn't just believe God with his mind or choose God with his will, but he also loved God with his affections. That's the kind of faith that pleases God. So mind, will, and affections. Did you catch it? That is the entirety of your inner person. The entirety of your inner person. To really please God, faith must operate out of all three areas. It must encompass what you think. It must involve decisions that you make. It must include the affections that you feel. It must come from all of you because all of you, only all of you, can really please God. So you want to please God? You have to have that kind of faith. And that's what the author of Hebrews concludes this section with in verse six. This verse really here summarizes everything that we just saw from these three by faith examples. Verse six says, and without faith, notice this, it is impossible to please God. What's the goal? To please God. That's the goal of faith. For he who draws near to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. The right priority is to please God and you cannot choose that priority without what? Without faith. Can't do it. Why do we struggle so much to trust God sometimes? Why is it so hard? Can I offer you a suggestion? Maybe it's because we don't have the right priority. You ever think about that? 
Let me give you an example. When your boss lays you off at work, or when you find out that your significant other has cancer, or maybe when that chronic illness refuses to go away and it's so painful and you don't know how to get through it, what is usually the thing that you want more than anything for the problem to go away, right? That's what it is. That's usually what we're thinking. And we keep asking ourselves, why, Lord? Why me? Why now? Why is this happening? J.I. Packer has a gentle answer for us. He says, if you ask, why is this happening? No light may come. But if you ask, how am I to glorify God now? There will always be an answer. Maybe we struggle to have faith because our priority is in the wrong place. We may long to, to get rid of the problem when God would actually rather us to please him in the middle of that problem. Faith reprioritizes your goals. It recalibrates your agenda. It says, I am not the God of my life. God is. God is the God of my life. Not my will, but your will be done. That's my ambition. And I will not let anything else jeopardize that whatsoever. You want faith? I challenge you, choose the right priority. Choose the right priority. Now that was the first lesson about faith. The second lesson about faith is this. Faith always pursues the better reward. Faith always pursues the better reward. And what is that better reward? It is an eternal inheritance. An eternal inheritance. And once again, we have, we have examples of faith that demonstrate this lesson. Uh, and there are four of them this time. So we moved from three to four. Okay, so a little bit more. A little more for us to, uh, to bite off and chew. So the author of Hebrews has been kind of, you know, kind of testing the waters a little bit. Now he's going to give us a little bit more, okay? And these four examples, they warn us this time about four potential distractions that can prevent faith from pursuing that eternal inher inheritance, Okay. Four potential distractions. Here's the first distraction, and it comes from the life of Noah. Faith always pursues the better reward as opposed to popular opinion. As opposed to popular opinion. Verse seven, by faith Noah being warned about things not yet seen in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the, of the righteousness which is according to faith. The ark that Noah had to build certainly would not win him any brownie points with his contemporaries, right? I mean, if anyone asked Noah in those days, why are you building that very large structure over there? And I'm sure he got that question a lot because it's very strange. He would have to tell them, well, God's wrath is coming on this generation because of your sin. Do you think they're going to take that well? No, they're not going to take that well right? This is going to be something that is going to put a black mark on Noah's record. In fact, 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 5 actually calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. So he wasn't just like building it and being like, you know, why are you building it? Oh, because, you know, I just kind of want to, or just even just because God told me to. 
But he's what? He's proclaiming what? A message of judgment. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. Noah was the only man in the world at that time publicly standing up for the righteousness of God. That's crazy. And that's certainly going to make him an outcast. But Noah didn't flinch. That's because, no, that's because faith always pursues the better reward as opposed to popular opinion. Not only was Noah a preacher of righteousness, but because he was a preacher of righteous, righteousness, notice what our verse says, he then became an heir of righteousness. You see that? Noah was looking for a better reward. He was looking for an eternal inheritance that caused him to not only see the righteousness of God, but to say, I can actually have the righteousness of God too. And he didn't let popular opinion convince him otherwise. Well, that's just one distraction. There's another one. Another one that, we, that can really derail our faith from pursuing that better reward, and, and it's this. Faith always pursues the better reward as opposed to temporal certainty. As opposed to temporal certainty. Look at verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out of a place uh, which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Now, now, now we've moved here from Noah to Abraham, okay? And we begin with Abraham at the very start of where the Bible actually introduces him to us in Genesis chapter 12. When God called him, called him out of his hometown, Ur of the Chaldeans, to travel to Canaan and to live there permanently. And our verse specifically mentions that Abraham went out according to God's instruction, not knowing where he was going. This doesn't mean Abraham didn't actually know how to get to Canaan necessarily. Rather, it means that Canaan was unfamiliar to him. He hadn't really been there before. This was a foreign country, and as we all know, when something's unfamiliar, it brings with it a lot of uncertainty, doesn't it? And that's a temptation that Abraham faced. You can stay in Ur and, and live a life that is familiar and comfortable, or you can trust God and go to Canaan where everything is unknown for you and your family. That was the choice that he had. Abraham chose to deny himself the certainty of Ur in favor of the uncertainty of Canaan. Why did he do that? Why would he put himself through such turmoil? Because as we'll see in a minute, he was looking for a better country. He was trusting that the land that God was promising him there was going to be the land that God was going to what? Become the eternal inheritance one day when Christ brings back his kingdom. He trusted that. He was looking for that eternal, heavenly country. But the story of Abraham continues with another distraction, a third one. Faith always pursues the better reward as opposed to earthly treasure. As opposed to earthly treasure. This is what we see in verses 9 and 10 from Abraham again here. By faith he sojourned, sojourned in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Once Abraham got to Canaan, it's not as though his doubts were alleviated out of, you know, out of nowhere. He was not like, oh, Canaan, this really isn't that bad. You know, you know it's, 
It's, it's, it's actually pretty good. You know, why was I so worried about this? Now, once he got there, he realized things were actually not all that great. Abraham never bought a home that he could settle down in. His entire life, as is described here in verses 9 and 10, was wandering around in tents. Um, camping's fun. You know, I know there's a lot of you guys in this, in this room that love to go camping, and that's awesome. I like to go camping. It's great. How would you like to camp for the rest of your life? There might be a few of you out there that's like, yeah, I'm totally down for that. Let's go, bro. But no, no, no. I guarantee you after a month, two months, a year, three years, 10 years, 20 years, you're going to be like, I, I need to find something more permanent and a shower or something. I've got I've to do something about this, right? Not many of us would want to do that. But that was Abraham's life in a nutshell. I mean, yeah, sure, he grew in wealth and he had servants and everything like that, but he lived in tents his entire nomadic life. That's what he did. He didn't enjoy the the pleasures and and comforts of a city that is secure and and comfortable, but Abraham didn't care. He didn't care because he understood that this land and this life was not his ultimate prize. He was looking for treasure in a city which Look at verse 10, get this, it says, which has foundations, which has foundations. That's really important. He understood that all that wandering in Canaan Canaan was not useless, right? He never had foundations. Guess what? He was longing for so much, a city with foundations. He was trusting in that. He was believing in that. Faith always pursues the better reward as opposed to earthly treasure because it understands that the treasure in this life is empty and it's fleeting. But the treasure in the life to come, well, that's satisfying. That's eternal. Here's the final distraction. Faith always pursues the better reward as opposed to conventional wisdom. Faith always pursues the better reward as opposed to conventional wisdom. This is what we see in verses 11 and 12. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she regarded him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there were were born even of one man, and him as good as dead as that as many as the stars of heaven in number and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. So Abraham's wife, Sarah now, gets a hat tip for her faith. And she does so by a very simple yet very profound gesture and attitude here. Sarah was over 90 years old when she conceived and gave birth to Isaac. Do you realize that? over 90 years old. Now think about that for a moment. That doesn't ever happen, like ever, right? And that wasn't common for them back then either. This would have been impossible. This is far beyond the childbearing age of women in our day. It's far beyond the childbearing age of women back then. And so when God first told Sarah that she would conceive, what did she do? You guys remember? She laughed. She laughed at God. She, she's like, you're crazy. You're out of your mind. Why did she do that? 
Why would we do that? Because she trusted conventional wisdom more than God. That's what she did. And that's so easy to do, isn't it? It's so easy to do. We are a nation and a world that is built upon logic, reason, and science, are we not? How easy is it when that seems to conflict with Scripture to try to compromise and say, you know what? Maybe this isn't, maybe what God says isn't exactly the way He said it. Really? Really? No. What Hebrews 11 helps us to see is that conventional wisdom is a distraction to what is really true and what really matters. And we see here from Hebrews 11 that Sarah eventually came around to trusting God about this, right? Because it says here that she believed. She had faith. She no longer bought into what should happen. She trusted in God with what would happen. The most unlikely promise of God, get this, is more sure than the most likely outcome in life. You need to believe that. The most unlikely promise of God is more sure than the most likely outcome in life. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? There are so many distractions that can stymie our faith. Public opinion, uh, popular opinion, temporal certainty, earthly treasures, conventional wisdom, you name it. Which one do you struggle with the most? Which one do you find the hardest? Are you swayed by popular opinion? Would you rather fit in than trust what God says? Are you drawn to temporal certainty? Do you feel the impulse to control your life, every detail, so that you can be perfectly secure? Are you attracted to earthly treasures? Do the pleasures of the world constantly suck you in? Or are you prone to bind into conventional wisdom? Does your logic and your reason keep, in, keep you from taking God at his word, his every word? Or perhaps you try to change it a little bit here or there just so that it'll make sense to you. All these are distractions that prevent us from truly trusting in God. What can get us on the right track again? What's gonna help us get there? Look at verse 13. We see another summary of what we just saw. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been remembering that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they aspire Look at this, to a better country, a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. What's gonna put you back on the right track? When you what? Pursue that better country. That's gonna put you on the right track. Are your eyes focused on what you can see right here, right now? Or are you fixated on the promise of a better reward to come? That 
will make the difference in whether you have faith that endures to the end or not. And now that we've learned two important lessons about faith, that it always chooses the right priority and always pursues the better reward, we can now conclude with one final lesson that really seals the deal. If you can make it your ambition to please God no matter what and pursue a reward despite all these other distractions out there, then the obvious conclusion is this, that faith can overcome even the most hardest of adversities. And so we can safely say then that faith always overcomes the hardest adversities. What kind of adversities are we talking about? Anything and everything. It doesn't matter. Because remember, what what have we been talking about this whole time? Faith is not about who. It's not about us. It's about who? It's It's about God. It's about God. Now you can see we still have a long ways to go to finish up this chapter in the Hall of Faith, right? Long ways to go. This lesson is the one that the author of Hebrews really chooses to camp out on. He spends the most amount of time on this and uses the most amount of ink on this, okay? And there's a reason for that. He wants to show you about as many types of adversities as you can face. And then he wants to show you that faith overcomes each and every single one of them. It doesn't matter what you come up with. Faith overcomes them all. Because again, faith has nothing to do with you. Nothing. It has everything to do with God. Faith is the absence of yourself and the presence of God alone. And so there are 11 Count them, 11. Are you scared? There are 11 by faith examples in this particular section here. So we moved from three to four and we jumped all the way to 11. We're gonna go for the jugular now, okay? But we'll move through these rather quickly to close out our time. So uh, stay with me, focus hard, okay? Because we're gonna be moving rather fast. Number one, faith overcomes the most formidable threat. Faith overcomes the most formidable threat. Verse 17, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only son, to whom it was said, in Isaac, your seed shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he also received him back. Sometimes adversity shows itself as a threat to God's promises, To sacrifice Isaac was to put God's own promise of redemption in jeopardy for Abraham because God promised that the Messiah would come through his own son, Isaac. So to put him to death was like putting to death God's own promises. But faith overcomes even the most formidable threats because it chooses to believe that God is in control of even threats to his own promises. That's crazy but it's true. That's why Abraham thought God was able to raise his own son from the dead. It's like, I'm gonna trust you with that. It may look like this is a threat, but even if I have to kill my own son, guess what? You'll raise him from the dead because you made a promise and you cannot back down from that promise. Number two, faith overcomes the most stubborn will. Verse 20, by faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau even regarding things to come. Sometimes adversity presents itself as a will that refuses to bend. And that's what we see here. Isaac's favorite son was Esau, not Jacob. 
Isaac wanted to bless his son Esau, not Jacob. Despite, despite clear prophecy given to him that Jacob is the son God had chosen, Isaac had a very stubborn will. But faith overcomes even the most stubborn of wills because when Jacob tricked his own father Isaac into blessing him instead of Esau, Isaac, his own father, the one who loved Esau, the one who had set his heart on blessing Esau, did not reverse his decision to bless Jacob even after he had discovered that he had been tricked. His will finally bowed to God's will. And he says, you know what? What just happened here? Even though I wanted to bless my son Esau, that was from the hand of the Lord. And so he bowed to God's will because he finally realized he couldn't stop God's will from happening no matter how hard he tried. So faith kicked in. Number three, faith overcomes the most uncertain future. Faith overcomes the most uncertain future. Verse 21, by faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each one of the sons of Joseph and worshiped leaning on the top of his staff. Sometimes adversity comes in the form of an uncertain future. As Jacob laid on his deathbed, he and his entire family lived in Egypt, not in Canaan, which is where God promised they would dwell. And so in Jacob's mind, he's thinking to himself, how is my family going to get back home? The future seems uncertain. God, you promised this, but it doesn't look like it's headed that way. How is this going to happen? How is this going to be resolved? But faith overcomes even the most uncertain of futures because no matter how unreliable Israel's future was, Jacob's God was not. He's not. He's not unreliable. Number four, faith overcomes the most inevitable outcome. Verse 22, by faith Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave commands concerning his bones. Sometimes adversity masquerades as an inevitable outcome. As Joseph too laid on his deathbed, not long after Jacob, his, his own father, died, the prospect of getting out of Egypt started to be seem more and more unlikely. It seemed to become inevitable that maybe in this particular circumstance, Israel's never going to get out of Egypt. In fact, Joseph probably remembered something God told his own grandfather, Abraham, in Genesis chapter 15, verse 13, that his descendants would be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. Whoa, that doesn't sound all that promising, does it? But faith overcomes even the most inevitable outcomes because against all odds, Joseph knew that God would create an exodus for them out of Egypt. Those 400 years would come to an end despite all odds because, it, because of what God would, would say later, just three verses later in Genesis 15, verse 16. And Joseph trusted God so much about this actually that he even anticipated Israel would carry his own bones out of Egypt which they did. Number five, faith overcomes the most terrifying situation. Verse 23, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. This one blows my mind. This one actually blows my mind. Uh, sometimes adversity appears as just a terrifying situation. And that's, we're familiar with that, obviously, but 
from Moses' parents to hide him for three months and keep him from being slaughtered takes an incredible amount of courage, doesn't it? Because really, what's, what's on the line? Not just the baby's life, but their own lives now, right? Why not, so to speak, cut your losses, right? But not them. Not, that's not what they're going to do. Faith overcomes even the most terrifying situations because even if Moses' parents were to lose their lives, they wholeheartedly believed that their son Moses was special. And I know like every parent says, my child's special, you know? But in this case, it's actually true, okay? In this case, it's actually true. How do we know that? How do we know that? Because that word beautiful in verse 23 is the same word used about Moses in the same context and situation in Acts chapter 7, verse 20, when it says Moses was beautiful in the sight of God, and therefore he was hidden for three months. In other words, what were his parents recognizing? Moses was special to his parents because Moses was actually first and foremost special to who? To God. But the question is, special how? What, what do we mean by beautiful and special here? What are we saying? We're saying this, that God had big plans for Moses. God was going to raise him up to be a deliverer for his people and fulfill his promise of an exodus. And guess what? His parents knew it and they believed it. Therefore, by faith, they hid him. Therefore, they feared God, not the king's edict. Number six, faith overcomes the most alluring temptation. Verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, regarding the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Sometimes adversity, as we're all painfully aware of this, it comes at us in the, uh, what feels like irresistible temptation, doesn't it? For Moses, it was an opportunity to enjoy as much sinful pleasures as he could imagine because he actually grew up in Pharaoh's palace. He could, add, he could have anything he wanted. But faith overcomes even the most alluring temptations because despite all of its appeal, Moses realized the pleasures of sin are only temporary. They're only temporary. But as we read this morning, at God's right hand, what? Your pleasures are forevermore. God's pleasures are forevermore. Number seven, faith overcomes the most intimidating, intimidating person. Faith overcomes the most intimidating person. Verse 27, by faith he left Egypt, not fearing the rage of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. Sometimes adversity packages itself as a very intimidating individual. Um, Pharaoh was no pushover. This was the most powerful man in the world. If you want to picture the most intimidating person, you got it. Moses was up against it. But faith overcomes even that most intimidating person because Moses chose to look not at the puppet that he could see with his own eyes, but at the puppet master that he could not see with his eyes. Pharaoh is only as strong as God wants him to be. Therefore, Moses did not fear a king he could see, for he was keeping his eye on the one he could not. Number eight, 
Faith overcomes the most perplexing request. Faith overcomes the most perplexing request. Verse 28, by faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. Now, sometimes adversity portrays itself as a seemingly illogical step of faith, okay? To us, the Passover is so familiar, we don't even think about it. It's basic Sunday school. You take the blood and you put it on the doorpost and the angel of death doesn't come and kill you, right? What's more, one more explanation, one more explanation do you need about that, right? But put yourself in Moses' shoes for a moment. He never sat in your Sunday school, okay? He didn't have the Passover story that he could read. He was living it for the first time. Think about this. The only thing stopping an angel of death from killing me is the blood of an animal on my doorpost. Tell me that doesn't sound strange or even cultish. Try doing that today, okay? It sounds crazy. And certainly it probably did to some extent to Moses as well, right? But faith overcomes even the most perplexing requests because it chooses to believe in the mechanisms that God has chosen to deliver his people since they come from a reliable God himself. God's methods are always reliable because God is always reliable, right? Right? God is always reliable. And what method is there that is greater than the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? Which the Passover itself prepares for. We trust in that, don't we? We trust in the death of Christ. To the world, the cross is what? Foolishness. But even the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man. We must trust in God no matter how crazy it sounds. Number nine, faith overcomes the most dangerous crisis. Verse 29, Faith overcomes the most dangerous crisis. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land, and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. Now, sometimes adversity arrives at our doorstep as a legitimate moment of danger, right? For Israel, in this case, the most powerful army in the world was about ready to converge and overtake them. But faith overcomes even the most dangerous of crises like this one because no matter how hazardous the situation is, you realize your safety is always in God's hands. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Israel looked like the most vulnerable people on the planet at that moment, when in fact, they were actually the safest because there was a pillar of cloud in front of them, right? And then the Red Sea parted for them and they walked across on dry ground. The Egyptian army, on the other hand, they looked like they were the safest people on the planet when in fact, they were the most vulnerable because they ended up drowning in the Red Sea after God closed the waters back over top of them. Number 10, faith overcomes the most insurmountable odds. Faith overcomes the most insurmountable odds. Verse 30, by faith the waters of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Sometimes adversity is just a big obstacle that seems unbeatable, right? Jericho was an impenetrable city and God's plan to overthrow it was simply to walk around it. You get that? You're going to beat this city by walking around it. 
That tactic would never overthrow a city today, not in a million years. It's not even a tactic. It's actually an anti-tactic. It's suicide. You're basically asking the enemy to beat you. But faith overcomes even the most insurmountable odds because it it doesn't matter how pathetic the strategy looks. God always wins. He always wins. Last one, number 11. Thank you for making it with me all the way through this. Faith overcomes the most intense pressure. Faith overcomes the most intense pressure. Verse 31, by faith, faith, not Abraham, Rahab, the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after welcoming the spies in peace. Sometimes adversity shows up as intense pressure to compromise or to conform in some way. And Rahab certainly faced that kind of pressure. She faced it from her fellow countrymen in the city who wanted her to expose the two spies who were hiding, right? That's That's what they did. But faith overcomes even the most intense pressure because it understands, here's the thing, the greater danger is not those around you who are putting that pressure on you. What's the greater danger? To disobey God. To disobey God. Why? Because in the verse here it says, she did not perish along with those who were disobedient. See that? And for this reason, Rahab did not perish along with those in the city. Faith overcomes the hardest adversities. Are you convinced yet? Do you think we need one more, two more, five more? I don't know. You got any more excuses to not trust God? Well, Hebrews thought of that too. Verse 32, let's keep going. And one more shall I say, for time will fail me if I recount of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, as well as David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith, get this, they conquered kingdoms. They performed righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong from weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. What? That's crazy. And others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and floggings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering in desolate places and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. We have no excuse. God has always been faithful, has he not? The Bible is littered with proof that faith overcomes the hardest adversities, anything and everything. So, Since faith overcomes even the hardest adversities, does that mean God is promising that if I just have enough faith that I can do anything that I want to do or have anything I want to have? Do all I need is more faith and I can win all the sports games or become a well-known influencer or have a successful job? 
Do all I need is more faith and I can have a great husband or a great wife or a family or a Bentley or a mansion or a private jet? Is that what I'm hearing, James? Because it certainly sounds like that could be what you're saying. That's a good question. Is that what Hebrews is telling us? Just believe and you can do anything or have anything you want? Of course not. That's ridiculous. Here's the thing. Don't miss this. If you scan Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 32, where we found all of those examples of faith, here's what you're going to find. Every individual overcame each of their adversities because God promised ahead of time they would. Did you catch that? Every individual overcame each of their adversities because God promised ahead of time they would. In other words, faith doesn't open the door for you to to, to give you what you want. Faith is what God uses in your life to accomplish what he wants. See the difference? You shouldn't be looking for possessions or or gain or outcomes to achieve that that God hasn't promised for you, right? Instead, if you want to know what you're guaranteed to overcome by faith, where do you need to turn? To God's promises in scripture. That is what you can be guaranteed to overcome. For example, someone may say, I can't grow. I can't change. You don't get it. That's just not who I am. But faith will always overcome that most stubborn will because God has promised he is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Philippians 2.13, that's a promise. Or someone else may say, well, my spouse is terrible and he or she is never going to change. I just can't take it anymore. I can't stand it. I can't do this but faith will always overcome that most inevitable outcome because God has promised, get this, not that he will change your spouse, but that he will change you. That he will change you, believer, so that you can finally learn to endure to the end. 1 Corinthians 10.31, that's a promise. And someone else may say, you just don't understand. I'm too scared to get behind the wheel of a car after that big accident. It's too hard. I get too scared. But faith will always overcome that most terrifying situation because God has promised, again, get this, not to deliver you from another accident or even from death itself, but rather that God will conform and transform your humble state into conformity with the body of his own glory. Philippians 3.21, that's a promise. Is this starting to all make sense now? Faith overcomes your hardest adversities. How God wants you to and when God wants you to. When you see your adversities from that vantage point of what God has promised you to overcome, you will finally realize there is nothing God cannot or will not do. Remember John? The young man who was diagnosed with cancer on his tongue? I want to take a moment and finish that story for you. The doctor had just got done telling John, even if the surgery is successful, you will not be able to speak again. But the doctor wasn't finished. 
You see, after pausing for a moment, the doctor also said, we must do the surgery as soon as possible, today. And so without much of a choice, John conceded to having the operation that day. And the doctors and the nurses got ready. <clears throat> they prepped the room and got John on the operating table. But before the doctor motioned for his parents to leave the room, the doctor asked John one last question. He asked, is there anything you wish to say? The young man paused for a moment, and a dark shadow crossed his face and tears began to flow from his eyes. But not long, uh, well, and the, the reason why that is is because John realized that this would be really the last words he would ever get to say. The last words. But not long after this, his tears stopped flowing and a smile came across his face and he started to sing these words. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. John sang all the verses of that beloved hymn, There is a Fountain. And he finished with the final verse. And by the time he was finished, that verse really had new meaning for everyone in the room. When this poor lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. And after he finished, John was administered a gas to put him to sleep. And the doctor started into the procedure. And as God would have it, John never regained consciousness. He passed away during the surgery. And as tragic as that sounds, it may be tempting to think that John's faith somehow failed him. He trusted in the Lord and it led him very swiftly to his death. But did you catch it? Did you catch the glimpse of God's grace shining through? John dreaded a life where he would never be able to speak again, never praise God with his lips, never worship him with his tongue. So what did God do? He took him straight to glory so that he would never know what that's like. John chose the right priority. He chose to please God rather than escape his difficulty. John pursued the better reward. He looked to the eternal inher inheritance rather than for temporal relief. And John overcame that hardest adversity. He didn't overcome it in the way we think he probably should or think he might, a tongue that is healed in this life or even surviving that operation, but he overcame in the way that God wanted him to. And that was the best outcome John could ever hope for. Our God does all things well. As you continue to face the enormous challenges God has put in front of you, how do you overcome your fear, your anxiety, your worry? What's the answer? Faith. You must trust in the Lord. Turn your eyes away from yourself and fix your eyes on Jesus, the author of and perfecter of faith. It's time to see the unseen. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, it is Jesus Christ, our Savior, who ultimately is that hope that we trust in.
we look to him. We trust in him, both for our salvation, to cleanse us from our sins and to give us eternal life, but also just even in our own sanctification and our walk with you right now. We, we trust in you for every aspect of our lives. And we look forward to the day that Jesus is going to return and going to restore us together with him for a life everlasting that will never perish and will never diminish in quality. And we trust, O oh God, that even in those days, beyond this life, we trust in the same way that Psalm 28 says that you will carry us forever because that's who you are. We depend so much upon you. So help us, help this congregation to love you more than anything and to trust you and to let you work in every circumstance so that we will fear you and you alone and nothing else. In the name of Jesus Christ, our most wonderful, perfect, and reliable Savior, amen.